Well, good evening, everyone. It's so good to see you. We are going into part six of our study of Moses and his discovery of God's hand and God's heart. And Lord, as we begin tonight, we ask for your blessing. Help me to speak well and help us to hear well and help us to connect with the the heart of the Spirit this evening. And as we begin our Bible study, we want to wait uh, or to take just a a moment to ask you to be merciful to those in the path of this this storm, maybe a category five before it makes landfall. We pray that you would be with them, uh, the people in the path of this storm. We pray that you would keep them safe. We ask that people in harm's way would find the miraculous intervention of God to help them. We pray for businesses and homes, for churches. Um, Lord, the list just goes on and on. We know what a storm like this can do. And we know how it can take people out of pocket in an already difficult time. So we pray for the mercies of the Lord in the strong name of Jesus over Louisiana and, and Texas in particular and uh, the path of the storm as it works its way uh, back out. Have your hand strong upon the people of the region. We ask in Jesus' name, amen, amen. Thank you. <clears throat> we, uh, as I said, we're talking about, in particular, Moses and the gods of Egypt tonight. We're talking about Moses' approach um, to getting Pharaoh to concede that the Israelites need to be set free. We've talked about the situation of Israel, the call of their heart, and how God listens, He hears, He sees, and He comes down to help us. We talked about Moses' family. We talked about his birth. We talked about um, his upbringing we talked about his, the first 40 years of his life where he was essentially royalty. And many scholars believe that he was in training to become the next Pharaoh. Um, uh, there's a, it, it could have been a couple of things, but uh, he was very high up in the royal family. And then we talked about what happens when you try to do God's will your own way. Try to do spiritual work in the work of the flesh. And uh, he ended up in the wilderness. Now, it wasn't a bad time in the wilderness. Uh, He met the love of his life. He had a couple of boys. And one day he came across an incredible sight we know as the burning bush. Um, We talked about how God has a plan for all of us to do some time in the wilderness. Um, the, The length of time depends on God's purposes and how well we learn or how poorly we learn. Um, uh, I had, was telling Justin today, I had a friend of mine that uh, um, was talking about how uh, he just felt like he kept making mistakes over and over again. And he said, finally, in, the, in, in desperation, he, I just said to the Lord, you're supposed to be such a great teacher. Why aren't you making this clear to me? And uh, of course, he was being funny, but uh, that's the way we feel sometime in the wilderness. We feel like God is just is obtuse and God just is not making himself clear. Um, but he is. He just knows how to get down to the deepest part of our lives. Now, 
we talked about Moses coming back and how God dealt with his call. Remember those two lessons, uh, encountering your burning bush and getting started in your call. Well, tonight we're going to talk about the heart of the matter, uh, Moses and the gods of Egypt. And that uh, is a little G, lowercase g, intentionally, because they're not real gods. But uh, he encountered the gods of Egypt. And um, let me go ahead and tell you tonight, lest I forget to mention it Sunday, uh, Corey and I uh, share now with Corey's new position on staff, we share the Wednesday night teaching responsibilities. You say, why do you do that, Pastor? Are you getting tired of us? Oh, no, no. I, I, I never have enough preaching opportunities, nor at any given time on Sunday or Wednesday do I have enough time. So I'm not having with, you know, needing to quit preaching. It's just that if Corey doesn't get to preach every now and then, he starts foaming at the mouth and kind of digging around like a dog. And uh, so he's, he's like me. He needs preaching time. So we agreed to split it. And with the COVID situation, we lost so many Wednesdays. We've shifted a little bit. And to, to better serve what we're trying to do, I've divided Moses into two parts. There's, there's 12 messages. We end part one tonight. And I've asked Corey to speak in September. And he's going to be dealing with the book of Jonah, the prophet Jonah, for the Wednesday nights in September. And then October... Um, we'll use the Wednesday nights, October, November, right, right up till Thanksgiving to, uh, to finish up Moses. So that'll help us with some, uh, with some planning that we had going and, and he'll be, he'll be stepping in next week with Jonah. But, uh, the good news is that we will get Moses and the children of Israel out of Egypt tonight. So, uh, we'll be back to them in just a few weeks. Um, when we talk about uh, the Moses and the gods of Egypt, the story covers Exodus 5 through 12. Um, if we were to read the account, uh, that's all we would have time to do tonight is just read that fabulous story. I encourage you to do it, but I do want to read a few verses from chapter 12. Now we've covered chapters 1 through 4 pretty pretty detailed, but we're going we're gonna to go with a broad stroke of the brush tonight. And let's focus on, on a, a, about a three verses or so, four verses. Now it came about at midnight that the Lord struck all the firstborn in the land of Egypt from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon and all the firstborn of cattle. Pharaoh arose in the night, he and his servants and all the Egyptians. And there was a great cry in Egypt for there was no home where there was not someone dead. Can, can you imagine whether it's a virus or an attack or a chemical attack or, a, or whatever? Can you imagine a situation? Uh, well, Egypt wasn't nearly as big as the United States, but even consider South Carolina. Can you imagine the devastation and what it would be like if there was not a home in South Carolina without someone dead in one night? That's what it was like in Egypt. Um, then he called for Moses and Aaron at night and said, rise up. Get out from among my people, both you and the sons of Israel. Go worship the Lord as you have said. Take your flocks and your herds as you have said and go. And while you're going out, bless me also. Now that sounds like a powerful few verses, 
But when we realize what has gone into that, these plagues, and we're going to talk tonight about God's dismantling of Egypt. But before that, we want to look at Moses and see what his heart was dealing with. There was the, the first thing we consider is the opposition that he was facing. Um, Moses had already been warned that the task would be neither simple nor easy. We talked about that last week um, when we were talking about getting started in your calling. Obeying the call of God is a delightful thing. Uh, whether you're like the Dickersons that would say, yes, this is, we remember when God called us to missions and the release we felt and the relief we felt when we said yes. Um, there, there's, there's nothing quite like the peace of God that comes when you surrender fully to him for whatever it is. It may not be ministry, but for whatever his will is. But don't be surprised if in that moment of exaltation, God says something like this, preach everything I tell you, but they won't listen to you. That's what he told Jeremiah. Um, you know, we, we're in a culture where, uh, uh, and this is why the pandemic is so hard on pastors in North America, um, is because the culture we're raised in, in Bible college and seminary, we're taught that you measure success by numbers. And now you're in a culture, you don't, know, you don't know what the numbers are. You don't know if you're a church of 500 or 3,000. You don't know if this many people are listening or this many people are listening. You say, well, you can tell who's, how many are tuning in for live stream. Yeah, but you wonder, is it somebody tuning in for live stream? And if it is, is it one person? Is it a family of six? Or is it a toddler trying to get to, uh, you know, Peppa Pig? You know, you don't know what's going on. It's like I said a while back, right now we're in a situation, and it's not just pastors, so much of our life, it's like we're trying to interpret shadows. And the thing about shadows is depending on how the light is placed, shadows can make a midget look like a giant or a giant look like a midget. And so many times um, we, we, we aren't prepared for God to say, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to be with you. I'll never leave you. I'll never forsake you. But you need to understand nobody's going to listen to you. That's, that's not, and they lived happily ever after. Moses was certainly going to be successful. Uh, somebody talked about how we don't measure success the way we ought to measure it. Um, and, and they were talking about John Wesley and they read John Wesley's obituary. And basically, I don't remember all the details of it, but the obituary said that, um, and, and, the, um, and the court document said that John Wesley left a pocket watch, an overcoat, uh, $12 and something in cash, two silver spoon sets, and the Methodist church. You know, what he had in material goods, you could lay on a tabletop. But look at the, the, the history of the, of the Methodist church as well as um, the entire Pentecostal movement for the most part grew out of the Methodist church and the theology of, of John Wesley. So I, I'm, I'm here to tell you as we go through this with Moses, don't necessarily take the measure of a man or woman's life from a set of numbers because they can be very deceiving. 
Moses had been warned that the task would be neither simple nor easy. And now there was natural opposition. He struggled with the response of the people. You remember the scripture says Moses supposed that the people would understand what he was doing was for their good, but they did not. So he had the natural opposition of his own people um, that didn't understand what he was doing. And, um, you know, it's hard, to, it's hard to imagine that Moses is so highly revered in Israel today, as well as throughout most of the world. But they didn't understand what he was trying to do, and they, they resisted him. They, they wanted him to leave. It was not easy plowing in the natural, but there was also supernatural opposition. When you see these 10 plagues going on, we're finding that it's God taking on all the gods of Egypt, uh, beginning with the Nile and working his way up to uh, the, the, basically the life of Pharaoh. Um, the Lord took what was arguably the 10 most potent and powerful in the eyes of the people deities in Egypt and starting with number 10, he just took them all on and one by one, he crushes them till he comes to the, to the, to, to Ra, the, 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 the sun itself, uh, which was manifested to Pharaoh and Pharaoh, who was the firstborn of the firstborn of the firstborn of the firstborn. Um, and, and with every passing generation, the idea that the power of deity grew, God just wipes them out. I remember when I was in college, um, I, I, loved, I loved boxing back then. I don't know why, such a brutal sport, but I loved boxing. And in particular, um, I loved Joe Frazier. And uh, he was my favorite boxer. And I, I, I had a, my, my roommate, Terry, his favorite boxer was, was Muhammad Ali. And of course, you know, those big three fights they had. Terry put up a poster uh, and it was Muhammad Ali naming five or six heavyweight contenders saying, I'll take them all on on one night. And that's basically what God did. We think the plagues may have covered a matter of a few months, not a, not a long time, but just one after another. And no sooner is one deity crushed than he takes on a more powerful deity and it's crushed and crushed and crushed. And, uh, but there was supernatural opposition. Now, what it looked like in these chapters, Genesis or uh, Exodus 5 through 12, God is the dominant character. How many of you know that God's always the star? He's always the dominant character. It's never a contest in doubt. Every fight God gets into has already won before the first blow is landed. So God's the dominant character. Moses is the dominant human character. And Pharaoh is a catalyst of sorts. Um, when we look back in typology, and some typology you look forward, some you look back. Um, when you look back on the deliverance of, Egypt, of uh, Israel from Egypt, you see Pharaoh as a parallel to Satan who has us all in bondage, who has us all as his servants. Paul said, we were all the servants of Satan. We were all slaves to Satan. We were all in bondage to darkness and we were set free by Christ. Christ is our Passover lamb. But Pharaoh is the catalyst. God says, I'm going to expose the system of Egypt 
as typified in the life of Pharaoh. And the people of Israel are observers of this cosmic drama. Now, there was a back and forth of modified proposals. You know, Moses says, let my people go. Pharaoh says, I will not. A plague comes. Then Pharaoh says, I'll let you go if you'll leave your herds. And Moses says, no, we're all going. And then another plague comes. Pharaoh says, I'll let you go if you leave your wives, your wives and your children behind. Moses said, we don't leave our families behind. We all follow the Lord together. And there's this back and forth and back and forth. Now, we just know, we just read at the culmination of this, the end of the 10th plague, Pharaoh says, go, take your, take your goats, take your cows, take your kids, take your wives, take everything, just go. And if you can find it in yourself, bless me on your way out. He knew he was whipped. But uh, there, was this, there was this back and forth. Now, I'm, I'm covering with broad strokes tonight, so forgive me if I'm back and forth on the scale here. The, the, the first nine plagues, it's basically God using nature against Egypt. Some people that did not know the grand scheme of things might have said, well, we've had hail before. This is just the way it is. Even though it was a monumental hailstorm that there had never been one like before or since. You know, well, I, you know, I've had frogs get in the kitchen door before, you know. But when you realize that the land, the whole land, um, it, it appeared to be nature on the outside, but you realize when you see the scope of it, and Pharaoh and his magicians, his court knew this, it was supernaturally driven nature. It was supernaturally driven nature. Now, um, but the 10th one is God's hand it, himself. It, it can't be blamed on nature. You say, well, a plague or a virus or a you know, pandemic of some sort might kill multitudes of people, but not the firstborn in every home. It was very targeted, very specific. And uh, uh, that was the hand of God. God was thoroughly in control. But the Israelites, for what was probably about, most scholars say, between nine uh, months to a year, had the difficult task of being faithful while the storm raged. Please note that during the plagues, even though Israel was protected, they continued to cry out to God. They continued to ask God for grace and help because whenever things, Moses made his first demand, their workload got exponentially heavier. And that's the way it is. It's not that it's God's doing. But it's the work of the enemy. Sometimes when God sets his, his plan in motion to set us free or to give us a blessing of some sort, sometimes the enemy responds in a way that we almost wish we hadn't prayed. Moses had the difficult task of representing God to Pharaoh, to the nation of Egypt, and to the people of Israel. And Moses would have this triple-fronted battle going on. He was hated by Pharaoh and his magicians. He was feared. Now, he was held in high esteem, but it was not a, oh, we just love that Moses. It means they were scared spitless of him. You know, it's like, you know, there's some things you just don't do. You know, you, you, don't, you don't pull the Lone Ranger's mask off, you know. 
And you don't cross Moses because they knew him. Some of them knew him from their, from their history. They knew the powerful military campaigns that Josephus tells us he fought. And Moses was already an awesome figure. But now he's come back with a divine anointing upon him. So he's feared by Egypt, hated by Pharaoh, and misunderstood by his own people. Moses has to carry this balancing act of, I've got to keep looking over my shoulder at Pharaoh. Um, I, I, the, the people of Egypt are, 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 are they're, they're, God is keeping them at arm's length, but they are a component in all of this. And the people of God don't know what to do with the way God is moving. Um, when I went to Southeastern uh, way back um, in, uh, in the early 70s, there were three books we were required to buy for a class. They were so popular that even though ministerial majors, you didn't take the class to your second or third year, freshmen would always buy the books because uh, the rumor was from the upperclassmen that you want to read these books at least two or three times before you get to pastoral theology. And boy, they were right. It was three little paperback books. They were expensive. They were a dollar and a quarter each. But three books by Oswald Sanders called Spiritual Leadership, three volumes. And here's a quote from that book that I came across the other day. A leader must be one who, while welcoming the friendship and support of all who can offer it, has sufficient resources to stand alone, even in the face of opposition in the discharge of his responsibilities. He or she must be prepared to have no one but God. That last sentence I wrote in my Bible in 1973, it so impacted me. He, he or she must be prepared to have no one but God. That's what we see in Moses and Oswald Sanders recognized that in spiritual leadership. So you've got Moses who is, he's already had training in the wilderness for 40 years. Now he has a crash course in spiritual warfare. Um, I, I, I want to tell you something. I believe we're about to enter a day where we are going to see an exponential increase of the hand of God. I, I, I asked Justin to help me remember to send this to you in writing, but I haven't done it yet. The day of the, uh, the Sunday of the earthquake, a couple of Sundays ago, which I mean, it was not a big deal as, you know, like national news earthquake, but it was big for us, you know, especially when it originated way up in North Carolina. Um, this is, this is the second time I've been aware of an earthquake in South Carolina. One was years ago. I'm, I don't even remember. I'm guessing it was probably a good 15 years ago, maybe longer. Um, it was, it, it, it woke me up. It was so vibrant, the shaking. And um, I mean, it wasn't like the, the roof was caving in, but it, it was clearly the bed was shaking. The, the lamp was shaking. And uh, I went running downstairs. I said, did you, guys, I wanted to know if it was just residual from my prayer or if we were having an earthquake. And I, I went and, and I, I ran to Ramona and the kids and, and uh, I said, did you guys, did you guys feel that? And they said, no, I didn't feel anything. Kids thought I was crazy. Ramona thought I was crazy. And I spent probably four or five minutes trying to convince them that we had had an earthquake. 
and Ramona said, maybe, she, she said, maybe you were dreaming. Maybe the Lord was trying to, I said, this wasn't the Lord. I, I said, I don't think, uh, I, I said, I think this was an earthquake. And I could not convince anybody that we had had an earthquake. And then in a few minutes, it comes on the news. We'd had an earthquake. And you remember there was a, there was a big poster that went around on, uh, not a poster, but a, what would you call it? A, a slide went around on the internet. It was a beautiful backyard and a flower pot had tipped over and it said, we will rebuild, you know. Um, <laughs> but I remember I, I, I couldn't convince anybody. I came to the office and told them, they, no, there was, it's, and, and finally the news had to verify there was an earthquake. And um, then the other Sunday when this happened, Ramona comes to me. She says, I think we've had an earthquake. She, she said, has somebody run into the house with their truck? I said, I don't think so. She said, I think we've had an earthquake. Stuff was dancing around on the shelf. Did you? And I was up. I was getting ready for church. And I said, I don't think so. I don't think so. I didn't feel anything. I didn't sense anything. And uh, found out that it was, you know, that, that we did and, and stuff on the shelf had vibrated around. And the Lord spoke to me when I was praying later that morning, he said, up until now, it's been the pastors that have said, God is moving, but I'm about to do a work that will be noticed by everybody. And pastors won't be the first to sense my hand moving. And, uh, and I thought, Lord, this, this, is, this is exciting. This is amazing. And this is the kind of atmosphere that was going on in the land of, uh, the land of Egypt. God was dismantling Egypt, but he was also building a nation out of Israel. Now, let me tell you what he dismantled in Egypt. He dismantled the economic system, totally dismantled the economic system. He had told the people, uh, told Moses, you will leave the land with the wealth of Egypt. You will have everything that you need. Um, this was done through the loss of crops and the disruption of industry. And um, there, was a, there was a strong element in the culture of the time. If you truly defeated a nation, you, you would ransack the nation. You would plunder the nation. In fact, there were some who felt that if you did not plunder the enemy, you didn't really defeat the enemy. And during these few months, God destroys the economic system. They have a loss of crops. They have a disruption of industry. And God, through Moses, tells the, uh, the Israelites to go to their Egyptian neighbors and ask for their silver and gold. Now, some translations say to borrow their silver or gold. Um, and I, I read a sermon getting prepared for this a while back where the guy said, I wouldn't trust a God that tells Israel to lie about what they want with the silver and gold. But you've got to understand, God didn't say, go borrow from them. May I borrow your silver and gold? Um, the, 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 reason, the reason some people say that is that the Hebrew word, for borrow is the same word for just to ask, to ask. Um, and God wasn't saying, hey, let's go trick the Egyptians. Let's ask them if we can borrow their silver and gold. And then we'll, we'll run out of the country with it. God did not do that at all. God said, you go to them and plunder them. 
Now, God granted them permission to ask instead of going in and taking it by force. But the people of Egypt were so fearful of Moses and the, the, everybody except Pharaoh seemed to be able to, to sense the hand of God on things. And the children of Israel took the riches. I mean, why in the world would the Egyptians lend their riches to slaves? Oh yeah, borrow it, bring it back when you're done with it. You know, keep, keep it, bring it back next weekend. No, they, they realized they were being plundered. This was the final, their, their livestock are gone, their, their fish are gone, their water supply was dried up at the command of Moses. All of the, and they're just, the, the people said, can we have your silver or gold? They said, take it, just go, take it. So God destro destroyed the economic system of Egypt. Then he destroyed the religious system of Egypt. I, I told you that, uh, oh, I've got to hurry. I told you that um, God took on the 10 most powerful deities of Egypt and he did. I want to recommend a book to you. I know that you can't buy every book that's worth having. Um, I, I, I did a lecture a few years ago called, you know, called uh, I mean, this was years ago before I came here saying uh, it was called 10 books every Christian must have in their library. And I did it the other day for SESL. I'm up to a hundred books now, you know, that are absolutely indispensable. Thankfully you can get them digitally now, but there's one you ought to have, whether it's digital or hard copy. W.H. Griffith Thomas. You can tell he's English because he has seven or eight names. But he wrote a book called Moses and the Gods of Egypt. Moses and the Gods of Egypt. And he talks about the theology of the Egyptians and how it was dismantled one layer at a time by the ten plagues. It's a, it's a great book. Now the plagues, you know them. The first was the plague of blood. And we could spend two weeks talking about the plagues, but I just want to introduce you to them. Then the plague of frogs, the plague of gnats insects, um, a plague uh, on the livestock. And by the way, gnats, um, you know, we think of gnats. Anybody growing up in West Florida knows what gnats are. But the wording was that the dust turned to gnawing and, and, and irritating insects that would invade your nose and ears. And I mean, you think about the dust. Um, it, it wasn't just a swarm here and a swarm there. The very dust of the land um, one day, just open the blinds in your home, and in the cleanest of homes, you can you can see dust just floating around. Imagine all of that suddenly developing teeth and claws. I mean, I mean, tiny, yes, but I want to tell you, it doesn't take much to get your nose messed up and your ears. Um, insects was a word for various bite, biting and gnawing insects. Uh, the plague on the livestock, the plague of boils. And I know that, I hope you already had supper and I hope it's had time to settle. But it was a word that was generally used of, of blisters and deep wounds that would blister over and have running pus coming out of them. So there were boils, the plague of hail. Um, I know we think, well, hail, that's bad, but you know, you can survive it. Um, this was a hailstorm described as the worst that had ever been seen in the land and nothing had equaled it since. Um, I, I remember when I lived in Missouri, famous for hailstorms, I saw a storm coming and I thought, well, I'm going to go by the 
post office and mail my request for money home and, and uh, get inside. And I remember I, I was in line to put my mail in the box. And uh, I remember reaching my hand out the window to put the mail in the box. And the hail was coming down and I had bruises on my hand. That's how significant the hail was. And when you realize that this is falling on people who have their bodies covered in boils, it's a, it's a nightmare. Well, there was the plague of locusts, the plague of darkness, and the death of the firstborn. Let me give you a, kind of a long paragraph to see, to put this in perspective. God began judgment by polluting the center of Egyptian life, the Nile River itself. The source of water was gone, but so were the fish in the river. Now that clears up because the people would have died. They couldn't have gone nine months without water. But for three days, there's no water available to them, except what they might have had stored in their homes. The source of water is gone. The fish in the river are gone. Then a multitude of frogs invaded every available space while trying to escape the contaminated water of the Nile. See, the frogs have the ability to get out of the river, but now they're looking for a place to hide, a place to get out of the sun. That means under your bed, that means in your closet, that means in your shoes, that means everywhere. Uh, can you imagine getting up in the middle of the night to go to the bathroom and stepping on about 15 or 18 frogs? It was said that the, what was I missed? Somebody, oh, you've done it, okay. I've done it at youth camp, uh, that's true, yeah, yeah. Um, it, it, youth camp, it was better to just wet the bed and get up and try to. Uh, it was said the frogs literally covered the land of Egypt. Unannounced, the, now those, those plagues were announced, but the next plague is not announced. The dust became gnats defined as biting, stinging insects that enter the nostrils and ears of its victims. Soon after, a mixture of insects began to afflict the Egyptians. That plague ended, but the relief was short-lived. The, the livestock of the land died, adding to the mystery was that the livestock of the Israelite community flourished. At this point, now listen, God had removed the supply of fish and briefly the supply of water. Now they have no red meat, they have no cheese, they have no milk. See, can you imagine what that would do to the grocery store if the meat, the dairy products, um, and bottled water for a while suddenly disappeared? On top of that, the decomposition of animals, frogs, and aquatic life made the land horrid. The sixth plague saw a tormenting skin disease that affected not only the surviving beast, but also the human population of Egypt. This disease manifested as deep pus-filled ulcers that affected even the magicians of Pharaoh. Apparently to that point they had just said, you know, well we're, we're on lockdown here, this stuff can't touch us. And the magicians end up with these uh, ulcers. Hailstorms followed with tormenting destructive effect. That event still stands as the worst hailstorm in the history of Egypt. Then a devastating swarm of locusts destroyed what was left of the Egyptian diet. The red meat's gone, the dairy products are gone, and now their grains are destroyed. So what have you got left at the Cairo Bilo? You've got, 
you've got tofu and potato chips. You know, I mean, that's it. Um, the vegetables and fruit and grains are destroyed. Now, the ninth plague doesn't sound bad compared to the others until you realize that it was utterly devastating psychologically. All of a sudden, three days of profound darkness. It, it wasn't just like an eclipse. It was darkness so profound that the people could not even leave their homes. I met a man one time that survived, or his parents, he was just a child, but his parents survived the Dust Bowl of the 1930s. And he said, uh, I think it was his cousin or his uncle, I forget, but he said, my uncle or whatever, died in, the, in a dust storm. And I said, how did he die? He said, he went to the barn. I, I said, was it a long way? Like, a, you know, in the South 40 or something? He said it was about 60 feet from our house. But the dust storm was so blinding, he couldn't find his way to the barn and then he couldn't find his way back. And we found him later. The doctor said his lungs was, were full of dust. I said, what, what did you do? And he said, the only thing we could do, we buried him and we tied a rope between our, our front porch and the barn. And when a storm came, the only way we could feed the animals was to hold the rope all the way to the barn and then hold the rope all the way back. And they lived that way for, for months. That, so for three days, now after all of this other stuff, all of this happening and what could have been a six-month period or so. Now, we can't even get out of our house. The darkness is so profound. You say, well, why was that such a big deal? Well, psychologically, it messed them up. You, you know the games we're having, to, mind games we're having to play with, just, just you can't go out like you used to. Well, imagine being totally immobilized, and on top of that, imagine that you worship the sun, and now the sun has lost all power to give you light. Your world has come to an end. The first nine plagues set the stage for the total breaking of Pharaoh's grip, but not until the death of the firstborn would Israel be set free. Now, I want to say this, and I've, and I've got to hurry. Though hardened hearts may demand plagues, I mean, plagues may come because of the hardness of hearts. There's no guarantee that hearts will be softened when the plagues come. See, we, we have a tendency to think that God brings judgment in order to soften the hearts. I think it's better to say that God brings judgment in order to reveal hearts. Um, we, we tend to think that on one extreme judgment or on the other extreme miracles will cause everybody to turn to God and everything will work out well, um, there's a theology that's going around in, in Pentecostal charismatic circles right now that if we can just have enough miracles, the whole world will turn to Jesus. Let me tell you this. I realized that Jesus, when he was speaking to the inhabitants of Bethsaida, he said, if the miracles that had been done for you would have been done entire inside, they would have repented. That was not, it's a misunderstanding to think that Jesus was saying, if we could just have more miracles, everybody would get saved. It was not an endorsement of miracles as a cure-all. It was an indictment of the heart of the people of Bethsaida. Jesus wasn't saying, if you, you know, you've had miracles, you should have gotten right. He was saying, your heart is so hard that even in the midst of miracles, you don't turn to God. 
it wasn't a miracles or a cure-all. Miracles are not what turn nations. In fact, there's only two passages in Scripture that indicate that there will be a turning of the world back to God. The first is yet to happen, and the second is yet to happen. Now, the Bible says in um, Zechariah that when Jesus comes, it says that the nation of Israel will see him literally coming back and God will pour out on them a spirit of grace and supplication. And for all of the hardness of heart, Israel will be saved in a day because their blindness will be removed. They will be given a grace of, of uh, a spirit of grace and supplication and everything they have fought against so vehemently for 2,000 years is suddenly made crystal clear and they accept him and Israel will be saved in a day. The only other time that Jesus says the whole world will know, he said, is when you love one another. That's yet to happen. If you don't believe it, get on social media. Um, I, I don't know who, church, who Christians seem to hate worse, the other Christians or the world. But when, when like I said Sunday, when the church gets her tears back and begins to love again, one demonstration of love has more life-changing potential than two dozen miracles. Now, don't get me wrong. I believe in miracles and miracles have a role and God can use miracles. But I'm telling you, we're, we're following the wrong path when we think if we can just get enough gifts of healing going. Everybody will be turned back to God. There's no reason to believe that from Scripture. You say, well, I know somebody got saved because of a miracle. So do I. But I've also seen people and know people that have seen miracles up close and personal. I know some people that have experienced miracles. But they said it thundered. You know, they hear the voice, but they say it was just thunder. Miracles are not the key. Miracles are something God can use. But love and the revelation of the Holy Spirit, when you get into the book of Revelation, you, you see it two or three times. So-and-so happened. They saw all of these miracles. It was the undeniable hand of God, and they repented not, and they repented not, and they repented not. Loved ones, that's why I want to tell you one of the most sobering things we've got to deal with in the days ahead is not only how little time I have on Wednesday night, but no, I'm teasing. I've got plenty of time. I'm just, I'm talking too much. Um, but what we've got to understand is it is a sobering thing to come into the presence of God. And, and you know, we, we come into the presence of God and we don't like this, we don't like that, we don't like that song, we don't like the color of the carpet or, or whatever it is. And we don't understand that we, are, we should be trembling with the realization that we are in the presence of Almighty God. No, miracles, supernatural activities, and judgment. All that does, unless God has mercy and turns our hearts, what it does, what miracles do, what judgment, two ends of the spectrum, what it does is reveal our hearts. And that's why Pharaoh would not let them go. Um, and we need to understand in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, when Paul is talking to the Thessalonians about Antichrist, he says, you've got to understand that when people refuse to believe the truth, God will turn them over to reprobate minds. He destroyed their political system. The death of the firstborn affected every power family from the throne of Pharaoh downward. And he destroyed their military system, not through the plagues, 
But in the next lesson, when we start part two, we'll find that Pharaoh, that hard heart of his said, why did I let them go? That was the stupidest thing I've ever done. And he takes his, uh, at least a large part of his military, heads out after the Egyptians. We're, I mean, after the Israelites, we're going to bring them back. And I want to tell you, if you've ever studied the, the Egyptian chariot forces, it's phenomenal. The way they would attack, like if I was trying to conquer that part of the room back there, um, a, 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 a contingency of, of 40 to 60 chariots would maneuver in such a way that every 60 seconds, 600 arrows would be plumbed, uh, uh, flown out toward this area here. Every 60 seconds, a handful of chariots... Uh, relatively speaking, could, could fire out 600 arrows and they were almost unsurvivable. But God crushed them in the Red Sea. Then the third part is the night nobody slept. God did two things on Passover night. He destroyed Egypt and he established Israel. Um, Moses confronted Pharaoh with a final edict. There were five parts to it. A catastrophic event will occur at midnight, Pharaoh. All of Israel's firstborn will die. Somebody asked me uh, by email, they said, Pastor, my Bible doesn't say it was firstborn sons. Um, so was it just the sons or was it daughters? Um, some versions, I think NIV says firstborn sons. Uh, others just say you're firstborn. Um, the, the history of... Um, Jewish scholarship has always said it was the firstborn sons. The, the, the reason for that is twofold. The grammar of it um, is masculine. You're firstborn masculine. But that's not a, absolutely ironclad because Hebrew would often, would often use a masculative, uh, masculative, a masculine pronoun to describe, you know, like we say mankind. You know, but we know that there's mankind and womankind, but we're the human race. So grammatically, it supports the idea of firstborn sons. But also when you understand what God was doing by attacking the firstborn son, the firstborn son, the firstborn son, the firstborn son. And he would say that Israel is my firstborn son. And I think, it, uh, and even today when you have the, the, uh, the, the fasting of, of uh, Passover, uh, which Jews still celebrate today. Males fast, females don't, because it's to remember that God spared the Jewish males on that night. So it, we're pretty sure it was, it was males and not females. Um, now that, that and $4, you can get a Starbucks on the way home tonight. But he said, all of Egypt's firstborn will die, whether it's mankind or cattle. He said, number three, the cry of distress will be heard on a national level. But the people of God will be protected and the people of God will go out. There will be an exodus. Now that's what he did to destroy Egypt. But he, but he established Israel as a nation. He said, this is going to be the first day of the year for you from now on. Um, you might know if you follow things Hebraic, you might know that the Jewish New Year is in the fall. But there's also a Jewish New Year in the spring. And one is the civil new year. One is the religious new year. And the religious new year has to do with Passover. He says, this is where you begin a new existence. You're set free by God's hand. 
You're set free by the sacrifice of a lamb. That sounds familiar, doesn't it? And you're set free by faith and grace manifested in obedience. Now we are not saved by works. Never get that in your mind. But once God shows grace and mercy, there's a component of obedience. Whoever believes shall be saved. And he said, when I see the blood, I will pass over you. Now what do we do with this? Well, I know we want to hear our missionaries, but let me give you, uh, in 60 seconds, let me give you four Christian life lessons. Number one, when you're in a tough place of service, that teaches us to embrace dependence upon God, and it's there we learn patience and wisdom. Number two, when God finally judges, He does so thoroughly. It is indeed a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Number three, at the same time God judges... He begins the process of blessing as well. And number four, all of us need to remember how serious this statement is. We must all give account to God. In this age of grace and mercy, we, we sometimes wonder, is God ever going to do anything? But when he starts, it moves quickly. Book of Revelation, Justin, I'm going to give them the illusion that I'm done. I'm going to stand up and you start coming this way. But in the book of Revelation, it talks about things which must shortly come to pass. Uh, Pastor Tommy, uh, that, that doesn't mean in a few days necessarily. Uh, when you look at the grand scheme of things, it is shortly. But when it says things which must shortly come to pass, one of the meanings of that word is that when these things start, they will exponentially increase. So... They're out, of the, they're out of Egypt in the morning. They're in the land. We'll pick it up with them in October. Okay, God bless you.